Parenting is work, like a lot of work, and it can be easy to feel like nobody understands. Well, I am here to tell you, as a mom of four, including infant twins, <laughs> that at the end of the day, we're all just figuring it out as we go. You are not alone. I'm Summer Shepherd, and this is, no seriously, how do I do this? Whew. <laughs> I am, I'm so grateful that you are here for what is sure to be a very different episode. <laughs> Have you ever had to pivot in life? Now, when I say that, maybe you think of that Friends episode where they're trying to move the couch up the stairs. <laughs> I'm pretty sure pivot took on a whole new meaning culturally when that episode came out. But you think you're going to go one way, but something stops you. Something blocks your path, and you have to pivot. You have to go a different direction. So I'm going to tell you, I had stuff lined up for this episode. It was going to be great. But for some scheduling reasons, we weren't able to pull it off. Okay, pivot. I had another episode lined up for you, and it was underway. I had put a lot of work into it. And then something with my system, it crashed, and I lost all that work, and I wasn't going to have time to recreate it. Pivot. Decided I was going to share with you my favorite Easter children's story. I was going to read it as a, as a gift for you and your kids to enjoy for the holiday. All of a sudden, that book is missing. I have no idea where it is. Pivot. And suddenly, an idea came into my mind that I knew this, this is what I have to do. And it was scary, and I wasn't quite sure how it would work out. And then as soon as I sat down to pull off this, this new idea, my system stopped working altogether. And I'm like, nope, this is the one I'm meant to do. I've got to find a way. And so here we are. I found a way. I'm recording again so that I can tell you my story. Now, I've alluded to my story here and there on this podcast, but I've never actually shared it with you, not in its entirety. And this is going to be hard for me. This is going to be a vulnerable thing for me to do. And I'm excited to do it because I'm just trusting that all of this went wrong because somebody is supposed to hear this story, but I'm a little terrified. I don't, I don't get stage fright, really. I love what I do, but this, this story, this content is laying it all out for you. And I can't hide. And so if you've ever been in that place where you're like, I am about to show you who I really am, and you may reject me at the end of it. Maybe when you were dating your spouse or you decided to get married and you're just like, you know, you need to know some stuff and you may run away, but it's, it's a chance I have to take. That's kind of where I'm at right now. I know we're not getting married, but we've built a bit of a relationship, I think. And so here we go. Once upon a time. <laughs> now, going back to the story of my birth might seem like a super extra thing to do. But I truly believe that for me, my story of God's grace over my life started there because I was born to an unwed teenage mother. Well, technically, she was 18, but you know, there's teen in there. She was young, and she was going to be doing this thing alone. She'd been dating a guy. It didn't end well. It went even worse when he found out she was pregnant. But she made the very hard and very brave choice to continue alone. And so here's this 18-year-old in the hospital. A month early, an earthquake in Southern California had caused her to go into labor. And, uh, and here she is, not, not fully ready, not sure she ever would be. 
And she gives birth to a little girl who isn't breathing. In fact, my umbilical cord was wrapped around my neck. I was purple. I didn't have a heartbeat. They had to rush me away from my very confused mom and revive me. And they did. That's God's first miracle in my life. He brought me back to life. I was, I was born dead. Now, my mom had a friend, a best friend. His name was Doug, very studly. And she had a crush on him. I don't even know if she knew it at this point, though. And he was very involved in those early days of my life. He would help pick me up from daycare. He would drive really far. I don't know if you've ever been to Southern California, but you pretty much have highways connecting everything, and nothing's terribly close. And so he would sometimes drive 30, 40 minutes to come pick me up from daycare to help my mom out, et cetera. And he's happy to do it. And the way he tells it, he fell in love with me first. (laughs) And when he did fall in love with my mom and asked her to be his wife, he gave her a stipulation, if you will. He said, I want to be allowed to legally adopt Summer so that I can call her my daughter without feeling like I'm lying and so that she can have my last name legally. And so he did. So I'm half adopted. I was born dead and I'm half adopted. There you go. The two interesting things about me. <laughs> um, but even though that had just this, this beautiful story book start. Um, My dad and I, particularly, we did not have a great relationship when I was growing up. There's a lot of things that played into that. We had very different personalities, and I was a bit of a handful, I'll admit it. I had a very rebellious season of my life that lasted, oh, I don't know, a dozen years or so. (laughs) More than that, more like probably 20, 20 years and it was hard for him. It was hard. And so I, I did spend a lot of my childhood trying to earn my dad's approval. My mom and my dad had two more kids, a sister and then a brother. So I'm the oldest of three. And it was always hard for me sitting at the dinner table and seeing my dad laugh at the jokes they told. And I would try. I, I mean, I would try my hardest to tell something that I you know, thought was funny, a joke or something. And when he didn't laugh, or worse, he looked irritated, man, it killed me a little bit. And so eventually, I stopped trying so actively with my dad. And I, I kind of, you know, I, I could probably sit on a therapist's couch and they could finish the story for me. But I went from trying to seek his approval to seeking the approval of every other man I encountered. For me, uh, relationships being appealing to men, getting them to like me, getting them to want me, uh, became my first addiction. And so I, whew, first really vulnerable moment. Um, I became sexually active very early. And at that time, I was going to church. I, I believed I was saved. I had made a, a decision for Jesus when I was a little kid. I even was on the worship team. But looking back now, I was a mess. I would be standing on stage thinking about that cute boy in the third row or thinking about my boyfriend who didn't know Jesus at all and how quickly I could be done here so I could go hang out with him. Like I was, I was not, I was not giving my heart and my life to Jesus like I would later learn to do. I wasn't. But I was involved in my church and while I was, oh goodness, 15 
years old, I, I met a boy. His name was Jordan. Now, he, he never did become my boyfriend, but I can admit to you here, um, he wanted to be, and I knew it. And it was never a secret to me. He was never very good at hiding it. Jordan was the kind of friend where if I were to miss church for any reason, if I were to miss the youth group, he'd call me. He'd be like, what's up? What's wrong? You need anything? Can I help you? <laughs> Do you need a ride? Can I pick you up next time? Right. And then if ever I did bring one of my boyfriends to church, you know, that, that rotating menagerie of <laughs> boyfriends, he would just sit there. He would glare. And he wouldn't even try to hide it. I'm like, dude, I'm going to pretend I don't see it because I didn't see him that way. But he was a good friend. Jordan uh, had a disease called Fanconi anemia, which is a rare disease, but not so rare that he did not share this infirmity with his brother and his sister. Now, he was the oldest of three as well. His sister had fallen sick a year or two prior and she'd been given like a 2% chance of living, had several complete blood transfusions. For fun, she used to just make up nationalities. She's like, today I'm Egyptian because she didn't have any of her original blood in her body. But she survived. She pulled through. With Jordan, I was 16 at the time, and he had gone into the hospital for just a routine checkup. But he stayed in the hospital. And I remember hearing from our youth pastors yeah, um, you know, he's in the hospital still, but they're saying his chances are really good. There's like a 75% chance he's going to come out. I'm like, excuse me? Because all I heard in that is there's a 25% chance he won't. And his time away from us extended and extended. And pretty soon groups in the youth group started organizing trips to see him. This is all pre-COVID and you could still do things like that. And so groups would go and I, I never did. There was always a reason. Usually, it was a date. It was something else I wanted to be doing with, I don't know, some guy I had a crush on at the time. Looking back, it was meaningless, but I never went with those groups to see him. And at the time, I was working as a lifeguard, and I remember getting a phone call at work. And the, the person who came to tell me, they're like, hey, yeah, uh, you got a phone call at the guard station, some kid named Jordan? And I, I almost fell over. I'm like, no way. And I, I take the phone call. And he didn't sound anything like himself. But he did sound happy. He was excited. And we talked. And he was encouraged. And in the middle of our conversation, which was very brief, the doctors came in. And, and he told me, he's like, all right, well, they're coming in to do some tests. He goes, will you call me back? Will you promise to call me back? I'm like, oh, totally, man. Of course. I'll call you back as soon as I'm home. And I never did. I, I don't remember what came up. It was, I'm sure, something meaningless. Uh, but I never called him back. And the next time I got a phone call that had anything to do with Jordan, it was to tell me that he died. And that was something that I carried with me well into my adulthood, well beyond finding Jesus. Like, that was a guilt and a shame that I still carried I remember going to his wake, and I had never met his family, um, but I, I walked up to the front, and I hate wakes. Can I please tell you that? I'm putting this out there so that if, you know, God forbid, in, in the near future, I pass away, and anyone tries, you hear that, like, they want to do a wake with, like, a, no, you tell them, no, she does not want this. I can't stand wakes. I don't want to remember the person that way. I don't want to be remembered that way. 
And so I remember going up to the front and I see him and he looks nothing like himself. His hair was white. Now, Jordan had the thickest, beautiful black hair and he was thin. He was a little guy, right? But this Jordan wasn't. He was swollen and, and he had white hair. He was 17 when he died. And I wait in a very long line because he was a sweet kid and he had a lot of friends. And I make my way up to the front and my mom was with me because I couldn't do this on my own. And we see his mom. And so my, my mom introduces us and she goes, oh, Summer. <laughs> okay. Well, I know that name. That name was always around our house, even if just in frustration. And so I leave. I go off to be by myself. I didn't know what she's talking about. I, was, I wasn't even really like, you know, plugged in. And my mom finds me later. And I'm like, yeah, you guys have a good conversation. She's like, yeah, you know, you know, Jordan was in love with you. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know, but I knew, you know what I mean? And I don't say this to be like, oh, look at me. Like, I mean, I was a cute 16 year old. I'll give you that. But that added to that guilt and that shame that honestly kept me from a vibrant relationship with God for another eight years. I mean, that, that clawed at my soul, that realization that I couldn't even call him back. Like that was a guilt that the enemy used, but that wasn't, that wasn't the last of it. Okay. Jordan passes away. I step away from the church for a while. You see, I wasn't, I wasn't mad at God for taking Jordan. I was mad at the church for how they handled it. When we would pray, the church would get up and, they, and they'd pray big, beautiful, flowery prayers, but they would say things like, God, we know you're going to heal Jordan. Oh, we know you're going to heal him and your glory is going to be known and people are going to come to the Lord through this because you are going to work a miracle here. Now, I did not have a terribly mature understanding of God, but I knew enough to know that God is God and I didn't feel comfortable telling him what to do. So I would pray, Lord, your will be done. This is what we want. But I mean, you do you, God. But when he didn't heal Jordan, so many people were wounded spiritually on a profound level from that church and walked away. And uh, I, I didn't walk away for that reason. So after a few, a few months of kind of healing, I came back. And I remember sitting down that first service back and opening up the bulletin. And there was a notice that we needed to pray for Marcus. Marcus was Jordan's little brother. It had now run its way through the family, and he was sick with the same thing. And so the pastor encourages the church to close their eyes and pray, and he starts out, Lord, we know you're going to heal Marcus. And I, I got up, and I left, and I never went back. And that's the important thing. You know, sometimes our congregations, our pastors, our church body, they'll disappoint us. They'll let us down. They won't fully align with us dogmatically, etc. But the answer is not to walk away from the church entirely. But that's what I did at 16. And I didn't have a firm faith to stand on in the first place. So I walked away and I found myself running with a very different crowd from that point. Man, we were very intellectual. We were activists. We would go to rallies. We do all of that. But the main takeaway I had from that season was, well, I know I do not know. Very Socratic, right? I, I was an agnostic. I stopped believing that there was a God, though I was never bold enough to call myself an atheist. 
But essentially, that's what I was. I didn't believe he was real. Now, theologically, you can draw from that what you will. Calvinism or Minionism was I never say Whatever. The point is, in that season, I would get in fights with people who believed in God, especially my mom. I would tell her she was stupid. I would tell her she was a fool and she was blind. How could she believe this? Oh, man, it was ugly in my house. Yet we were just at each other. And, and she had her heart in the right place, but it was ugly. And it just drove me further away. Um, not that I needed any help. As soon as I was out from under that body, I started falling into everything I'd always said I stood against. Drugs, sex, rock and roll. Okay, I just, I, I fell and I fell hard. And I went running down a very different path than I thought I'd been on. And I started partying. And I started being a little bit more casual in my relationships. You can draw your inferences from that. I started smoking. I started drinking. And I started doing drugs. And I broke. And I didn't even realize it at the time. It wasn't until much later that it, it really stuck out to me how much depression I was truly experiencing in that season. But it was totally masked. And the people I was running with were no different. So I, I honestly, I didn't see it. And I, I struggled, and I self-medicated, which caused me to struggle, which caused me to self-medicate. And all the while, I was actively trying to silence this voice in me that told me that what I was doing was wrong. So after running away for about six years, I can honestly say there was no shame for any of the stuff I was doing. I would steal money, boyfriends, didn't matter. Like, I, I would... I just was not living my best life, <laughs> to put it lightly. It was a really dark season for me. And uh, there was a weekend where it all really culminated. It was Good Friday of all days, 2009, that I found myself at my, uh, my favorite punk bar in Chicago with my uh, ex-boyfriend's roommate. It was his birthday party. And this is a relationship that I hadn't fully healed from. And so that ex-boyfriend was there and it hurt. It hurt to see him. And I'm like, you know, it's, it's fine. I can, I can do this like a man. You know, I'll get what I want and I don't have to let it emotionally impact me at all. Right? And I really thought that was true. And so I made it my goal uh, to go home with him that night, my ex-boyfriend. And I did. I won. Right? But the next day I realized, whew. I am not nearly as emotionally detached from this as I thought that I would be. And so I leave and we find ourselves at the same party again that night. Well, he wanted to send a message to me very clearly that uh, it, it did not mean anything to him. And so he started taking out his phone and pretending to call and text other girls, you know, just to you know put me off the scent or, or whatever he thought was going on. And in, in my drunkenness at that party, uh, all I could comprehend was I'm like, this sucks. Like, this does not feel good. I don't like this at all. And so I, I got my car and I drove away, not in any condition to drive. Now, by the grace of God, I did not get into an accident. I did not hurt myself. I did not hurt anybody else. But that, that truly is by the grace of God. I went to a friend's house who in every way represented all of the sins I'd been getting so used to over the last six years. Drugs, sex, and rock and roll. 
And I left his house Easter morning and I, I snuck home. Now this weekend, I've had very little sleep. I've had a few encounters. I have drugs in my system and alcohol on my breath, remembering that I had promised my family I'd go with them to church. So I sneak back home. <laughs> I, I sneak into my room so they wouldn't know that I had gone. I really thought I could fool them. They were much smarter than I gave them credit for. And then I get ready and I get into the car and I, I drive to church. Now I'd been with them as favors a handful of times over the previous years. I even knew a couple of the youth that had been around for my sister and stuff like that. But I'd always judged them. I thought they were all fools. And that day walking into the church, I, I looked around, and for the first time in years, these people didn't seem foolish to me anymore. In fact, I didn't feel like I was worthy to be in the same room as them. I didn't know what this was. I had this weight, like weighing on my soul that I didn't even recognize. And I sat down in the church I was going to at that time. Thousands of people went to that church. And this was Easter, so you, you can figure how full this place was. And I stared at my shoes because I was so sure that everybody was looking at me. And the pastor got up, and I, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for that canned Easter message, right? I grew up in church. I knew the story. I know that, you know, Jesus died, he was crucified, he rose again in three days, whatever. But that wasn't the message that they preached. The, the pastor got up, and he started talking about the fearful wanderer. He said, there's someone, there's someone here today who needs to hear this message, who feels so much shame for the things that they've done since walking away from Christ that they feel like they can't come back. And all of a sudden, I recognized what that weight was. It was shame. You know, it had been so long since I had experienced shame for anything that I didn't even recognize in sensation. And I was horrified. And I'm sitting there staring at my shoes even harder because he's talking to that one person in the audience and everyone must know that that one person is me. And so I stare at my shoes as he proceeds to tell the story of the prodigal. Again, this is a story I'd heard. But that day I heard it for the first time. This this dignified father, this wealthy man, sitting in the window of his home, watching for his son to return. And he'd been sitting in that place, waiting for his son for a long time. And one day, on the horizon, he sees this young man approaching, his head hung low, shame racking his body as he shuffles back home because there's nowhere left for him to go at this point. And that father stands up. And though it was undignified to do, this, this lord of the property, he hikes up his robes and he runs. And he doesn't even wait for his son to make it all the way back to him. He meets him in the road and he wraps him in a hug and he says, welcome home. And his son is trying to, you know, apologize. And he, he's not, he doesn't even care. He's like, welcome home. I've been waiting for you. And though it wasn't said, in my head, I had this picture that God had never turned his back on me. 
but that I had turned my back on him and that if I just turned back around, he's right where he always was, waiting to welcome me back home. And I wish I could tell you it was that easy. I wish I could tell you that right then, in that service, I heeded the altar call and I ran to the front and I fell on my face and I gave my life to the Lord, but I didn't. You know why? Because I didn't want my family to have the satisfaction. (laughs) I didn't want that. I knew that's what they wanted me to do. And I didn't want them to feel like they'd won. I was that broken that I knew I needed the Savior. And I couldn't accept him because I didn't want to make my family happy. So I went home. But this was the moment for me. He's like, nope, you're done running. You've built your story. You've had your testimony building time. Now it's time for you to come home. So I get home and I, I'm uh, I'm making arrangements for dinner. You know, my job is usually to set the table. So I'm, I'm setting the table. And as I'm doing it, I just had the weirdest thing happen. I just start shaking and my eyes are watering and I can't breathe. And I'm, I'm pushing through and I'm trying to set this table. And then it just, it hit me. I'm like, I, I can't keep running. I made it through dinner, but then I had my best friend come over. And I had my sister join me. And I had two of the friends I'd made from the church, just from her involvement, come over. And I remember sitting on the floor of my bedroom because I couldn't stand. And I said, I can't keep running. Would you pray for me? Because I don't trust myself to speak. And I, I fell to the floor and I just wept. And they prayed for me to accept Christ. And I agreed in my heart and I did all that. But I couldn't even speak. Now, 24 hours before, I didn't believe there was a God. And here I am, prone on the floor, giving him everything I had to offer, which admittedly was not very much at that point. I had spent my inheritance, so far as I could see, in rough living. And here I am, crawling back home, saying, I'm so sorry. Will you take me back? And there was God saying, What took you so long? Welcome home. I realized after that moment that there was another pivoting point in my life that I needed to make some big choices. But the first one that I had to do is I had to agree to honor God with my brain, which is something that I admit I'd never done before. I think there was a part of me that was always afraid to ask those hard questions because I, I was afraid there wouldn't be good answers. And so I spent so many years running away as an intellectual that I needed to prove to myself that I could be smart and be a Christian. So I started studying everything I could. And he showed up in all of the arguments that I'd never bothered researching. And I was just lit on fire. And shortly after that, I felt called into ministry. (laughs) Not just ministry. I felt called to be a missionary. Now, for me at the point, I I thought that meant I was going to go to Africa. And I was terrified. So I started uh, asking questions. There's more to that story, more relationships that were built, some toxic that actually through some heartbreak and, and angst helped grow me even further. That's another story for another time. But he shot me out of a cannon that first year. I chased after him harder than I chased after anything. I was on fire I would sit down with my friends who didn't know Jesus for 13 hours and we would explore scripture together. Man, I was ridiculous. I don't know if any of my arguments were sound. 
any of my theology. I, I had no idea who half these people were that they were talking about in church or what order things happened. But it didn't matter because I had Jesus. And he shot me out of a cannon. He, he sent me to foreign mission fields. I got accepted at Moody Bible Institute, one of the top ministry schools in the world. And I started studying to be a missionary. And on that journey, you know what? It wasn't always easy. There were still seasons in which my old doubts crept back in. And I had to bring those to God. I still today have to bring those to God because I'm human. And those arguments are so powerful because they make sense. They appeal to our sense of logic. And so I had to constantly come to God and be like, Father, I need your help. I'm back here again. Please show me your grace. Like Gideon with the fleece, Lord, I just need you to show up because I am so weak. Show me your real. Reveal yourself to me. Assuage my mind and remind me that believing in you is the most sound and sane thing that I could do. You're the only thing that makes sense. And he met me again and again. There's one story I do want to share with you because it's one of those stories that I always hold on to. During that first season, I felt very strongly from the Lord that all of the ways that he was blessing me and revealing himself to me, I needed to hold on to because there were going to be times in my life that it wasn't so easy. There was going to be periods of spiritual drought. You know what I'm talking about? Right? When I wasn't going to be on that mountaintop. And I needed to remember these stories. I needed to draw on this well of faith that I was in the process of digging. And so one of those stories, I had felt like I was led to Moody, to ministry, but I knew I wouldn't qualify. I had squandered my early college education. I'd gone to the community college to act. That was my background. I was an actress and I failed out. And so I went back trying to, you know, rebuild my grades. But now I'm back in that environment where I'm hearing all those same arguments. And what I wasn't hearing was well, from God. <laughs> I felt like he was being very quiet and I was struggling. And so I, I brought my sister to church. I brought her this, you know, college age ministry that we were both a part of. And we're sitting there together. And, and I just started praying before the worship because I promised myself I'd gone from being a worship leader from a place of emptiness to promising the Lord that I was never going to do that again. I was never going to worship him without meaning it. And so I sat there and I'm like, Lord, I, I'm hurting. I'm feeling empty. You're strangely silent. And I am struggling with old doubts again. I need you to meet me here, God. I, I don't know what to do. I was, I was panicking. I was panic praying. But in my head, my sister had no idea. And she was sitting next to me. Now, again, this was a church thousands attended every Sunday, thousands of seats. And underneath each one was a Bible. And there's people whose job it is every Sunday to go through and clear out old papers from these Bibles. Okay. So my sister forgot her Bible at home that day. She picks up the one in front of her, and there is one of those loose papers. Someone didn't do their job. And so she's being a little sister. She pulls it out. She's like, I don't want this. Shoot. And she like throws her trash at me, you know, as I'm praying. I open my eyes, and I pick up that piece of paper, and my heart stopped. Because on that piece of paper was the sermon notes from the message that had brought me back to Christ the year before. He showed up for me, and he has time and time again over the years that followed. He's shown up for me through abundant blessing. Yeah, I have a great life. I, I do. I have a wonderful family, and we are cared for. And he's also showed up for me in seasons of difficulty, 
in the hospital with our daughter, in seasons where my marriage is on the rocks and I don't know what is going to become of us, seasons where we are struggling financially and have no idea how we're even going to make it till the next payday. He's always been there. He's faithful, even when I am not. And even now, I got to tell you, there are plenty of times where I am not, but he's good. And do you know what I found out after the fact brought me through that season? The reason I believe that Easter played out the way that it did. One, well, because we have a sovereign God who always knew I was meant to end up there. But I had a mother who never stopped praying. And maybe you are in a situation right now where you are feeling desperate because someone you love with all your heart, if you're being honest, if they were to die today, you don't know if you'd see them again. I want you to know that prayer works. That having a mom who, even though we fought, man, it was ugly. (laughs) Even though we fought, she never stopped praying for me. After I accepted Christ and uh, had taken my first tour of Moody, I was with my mom. She came with me, and so did my sister. And and we're walking around the campus, and I remember thinking, man, this is a beautiful school. What an amazing opportunity it would be to go here. And while not audibly, very almost audibly was a voice uh, that started speaking in my ear, being like, who are you kidding? You don't belong here. If they only knew the things that you'd done, they'd laugh at you. They'd kick you out. Oh, give me a break. Look at you. You got ripped jeans. You got a nose ring. (laughs) You have a tattoo. You don't belong here. You're a faker. You're a fraud. No one would be blessed by your ministry. You're trouble. You're broken. And uh, I was really struggling with that. Sat down for lunch with my mom, and I just felt like I needed to confess. My poor mother. I sat down across from her, and I told her everything I'd ever done. Oh, she was praying for me. She knew I was a mess all right, but she didn't know how messy. I told her every drug I'd ever tried. I told her every decision I'd ever been ashamed of making over the last six years. I told her everything. And, you know, she looked at me. She didn't say anything. One tear fell down her face. And eventually she looked at me and she says, but you're forgiven. That's not who you are anymore. And I've never heard that voice again. I was free. And you know what? I did go to that school. And I graduated with honors. Dang it. (laughs) And I am a missionary. I'm not in Africa, but I'm a media missionary, right? We all have a story to share. I just have a loud microphone (laughs) to do it with. But how is God working out your story. And maybe looking in the rearview mirror, you see how he has been working all along. How is he calling you to share your story? Who is he calling you to share it with? There have been opportunities over the years where I didn't want to tell people where I'd been, who I'd been, what I'd been doing, that I chose to anyway. And I saw, especially in those moments, how boldness was rewarded whether it was on a mission trip in Romania where they made me tell my whole dang story in front of a youth camp. Boy, was that awkward. But you know what? My entire small group got saved that night. And other kids who didn't think that any of these American leaders wouldn't understand what they'd been through, they came up to me and they said, your story is my story. Who would have guessed? 14 years old, these kids. God gave you your story for a reason because before you were born, he knew every person you were going to encounter. 
And someone, someone needs what you've been through. And that doesn't make the pain go away. I'm not even going to say it makes it worth it because I bet your story hurt as it was being written. Mine did, but your story is given to you for a reason. And maybe you feel you don't have a story. You're like, honestly, Summer, I've been pretty vanilla my whole life. My husband felt that way. He's a pastor's kid. Boy never even held someone's hand before me. He made it all the way to marriage. Not me. Not me. He was intimidated by the fact that we were going into ministry and he didn't have a story to tell. But you know what? People needed his story too. They needed that kid who'd stayed pretty much on the uh, straight and narrow, but who chose Christ for himself. I want you to know that your story matters and is valuable. And I want you to know that you should never stop praying and that you should be bold because it will be scary sometimes, to be honest. But it is in those scary moments that God can be glorified the most. Because in those scary moments, when we choose to tell the truth, that truth carries power. Because that truth, if we're telling the truth with a capital T anyways, that truth is power. He promises to go with us. We're never on our own. And so lean into that. Lean into that presence that walks beside you and that carries you when you're too weak to walk. And trust him where he's leading you, how he's writing your story. It's for a reason. And if you have someone in your life who's lost, never stop praying. This was not the episode I intended to bring for you today. (laughs) Honestly, I have the entire year slated out and this was not on the list. But I'm praying you were blessed by it. I'm praying that all the technology broke for a reason. (laughs) It's the thing that keeps us going, right? Trusting that God has a plan when everything falls apart. In fact, here, you know, I want to read you a verse. Again, was not prepared for this. So if you can bear with me for a second, I've got to look it up because I don't want to misquote it. This has become my life verse. This was a verse that I first discovered while in Romania. (laughs) At that youth camp, the morning I was going to have to share my testimony because, like I said, I, I was I was terrified. And I sat reading my Bible, looking out over the mountains, and it was First Timothy one fifteen and sixteen. Here's what it says: The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ He came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He saved me so that people could say, hey, if he can do that for her, he can do that for anyone. (laughs) If he can put that girl on the right path, maybe there's hope for my son, for my daughter, for me. If you want to reach out, if you want someone to talk to, I want you to feel free and safe to reach out to me, summer at seriouslyhow.com. Or you can connect with us on Facebook. Just search for No Seriously, How Do I Do This at facebook.com. But as always, I want you to hear this. Maybe this episode more than ever. You are loved and you are not alone. 